Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, this very moment, um, what we are doing right now and talking to you feels in some ways deeply counterintuitive. Um, that, that just to speak um, to one that we do not see, to believe that you would hear us, you the creator of the universe, and that you would actively respond to what we ask for is something we acknowledge that oftentimes we have a hard time uh, truly recognizing. And yet, Father, because you tell us, we do come to you in prayer. And because you invite us to, we ask for your help. Lord, we, we know that your word is good. We know that it is what we need. And so we ask um, that your spirit would open our minds, our eyes, our hearts to what you have to say to us, that we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so some of you have been uh, joining with us in our adult Sunday school class. If you have, you'll know that what we've been talking about over the last, I don't know, couple of months has been, um, we've been talking about the idea of secularism. And what we've been trying to name in it is that kind of growing sense of tension that I think people who seek to follow Jesus have been experiencing, where there is this greater awareness of a gap between what we believe our calling as followers of Jesus is and, and where we feel like our culture is encouraging us to go. And, and trying to talk that through because we don't want a response of just defensiveness, we want a response of of compassion and love, and yet how do we navigate this where there is an, you know, like a difference between where we are called and what the world around us that God has placed us in is seeking to do? And, and the word that the Bible uses to describe that, that dis-ease, that tension, that dislocatedness that we are feeling is exile. The New Testament says that when you are a follower of Jesus, when you are saying your kingdom come to Jesus, which is what a Christian says, you find yourself in this world in exile. The idea of exile was, was not kind of an empty metaphor for the New Testament writers as Jews. It was a core part of their history. You, you might know that a few hundred years earlier, that the Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, tore down the walls, and forced God's people to leave and to live in Babylon. And, and we just, I don't think, can comprehend just how utterly disorienting that would be. To have gone from living in a society where everyone, whether they live it out or not, at least tacitly acknowledges that God is king, to be a part of a nation where that is the center, and suddenly now to live in a society that is completely different, that recognizes different gods, that is not at all interested in your religion. How do you navigate that? That was the question of the exile. And even after God's people were returned back to their land, there was a sense that the exile isn't quite over. And so in the New Testament, there's this dawning awareness that as long as God is not acknowledged throughout the world, as long as Jesus, who is the true king, is not seen as king, then all who confess the name of Jesus are not yet at home. We're in exile what we've been singing when we say, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this land. We're recognizing that this isn't our home. And, and the question that, that we are plagued with, and I think probably especially in, in recent days, is how do we do this well? 
How do we follow Christ faithfully and live also faithfully in this world that we love and wants to care for? And it's with that question that we come to the book of Daniel. Daniel is a book for those in exile. Uh, we might have already noticed when, when Gretchen was reading, it begins with basically the beginning steps that would lead Israel into exile. And when we get actually to the end of chapter 12, it, it speaks of the very end of all kinds of exile when all is made right. And in between is almost a training guide. There is something about chapter after chapter in Daniel that is meant to help its readers learn this is the way that you do this. This is what it means to be a follower of God in a world that does not recognize him. And that's what we're going to be working on over these coming weeks in discipleship groups, during preaching. We'll also be sometimes talking about it in Sunday school. It's not going to be just so that we can understand the book. It's because we want to know how to do this better. And Daniel is meant to help us with that. Now, the opening chapter that we just read is, is kind of meant to set the table. And especially the first seven verses are meant to draw to our attention that the challenges, the problems that we face when we are in exile. And it, and it focuses on two. The first is that the reality is when we are in exile, God does not seem to be in charge. So as we begin the passage, we're told that, that this is actually, by the way, this is about 15 years before Israel finally is defeated and brought into exile. But you have Nebuchadnezzar already strong, bringing his army around Jerusalem, and Jehoiakim is terrified by that. And he basically just kind of waves the white flag and he says, hey, if you don't destroy us, we'll do whatever you want. And Nebuchadnezzar says, give me your temple instruments. So he gets their dishes, he gets some of their cups, some of the golden treasure that belonged to the house of God. Some of the things that were considered holy and belonging to God, Nebuchadnezzar just kind of plunders the temple and walks away with it. And the reason he does this is not just because he's looking for better cutlery and that kind of thing for him to eat with. We're told exactly what he does. It says he takes that and he puts it in the house of his God, Marduk. And what he's doing is a power move. He's saying, look, I'm able to take from your God. I'm able to put in mind, guess whose God is stronger? And really, if you were in that day, what, what other implication would you draw from this? I mean, the God of your nation is meant to protect your nation. If your nation falls, if it is weaker than another nation, what does that say about your God? When, when eventually God's people fall, when exile happens, that is the, the, the resounding question. Has our God failed? Is our God weak? Is our God absent? And I would suggest that this is one of the fundamental questions and difficulties that we are faced when we are in a world that does not recognize the power of God and, and God's kingship. I mean, don't you feel that? Don't you feel... That, that sense sometimes that it is hard to recognize or believe that God is actually in control. If you want to do something that, that is important or powerful, if you want to change things in this world, how, how would you go about doing that? I think most people would see, okay, the political, if we run for office or we elect someone, that can make a difference. Or... Or economically, starting a business, that can be huge. Technologically, these are the powerful things. Would you say, I want to change the world by doing something with a church? 
If you want to influence people, entertainment will shape society. Social media will make a, a huge mark. But how about Christianity right now? Does that seem powerful? Shouldn't it? If God is really what we say, if God is really the one who's in control of all things, the one that's at the center of the universe, shouldn't he feel stronger to us? I mean, don't we feel that when we're trying to tell someone else about our relationship with God, and we feel like this should feel stronger right now, but it feels really weak. And what Daniel is alerting to us is this, is this is part of what it looks like to live in exile. When you're in exile, where, where, where people around you, where the people in charge don't recognize the power of God, God will feel at times like he really isn't in charge. The second challenge that we see is, is very similarly connected to the first. And that is in a series, when, when we are in exile, we will find enormous amount of pressure to co-opt us for other purposes. So what we're told after is Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just ask for these temple instruments. He also asks for people. We're told that, you know, like there's this, this description of the king commands Ashpenaz, his kind of chief officer, to gather youths without blemish. So they're handsome, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom. And youths probably means young men here, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. These are the future leaders of Jerusalem. These are high school-aged boys who are both good-looking and smart and really capable. And Nebuchadnezzar takes them all. And he brings them to some kind of school in Babylon. And it says they train him, they, he trains them for the language, so they're now learning Akkadian so they can speak the Babylonian language. He trains them in Babylonian literature. He gives them food from his table. Now, lest we start kind of having maybe a rosy picture of kind of like a, a Babylonian, I don't know, Hogwarts or something like that, we should recognize that there's something much more malicious here that's going on, that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to exert control. He's taking these, these boys, and when he's teaching them Babylonian literature, you should understand that Babylonian literature involves all sorts of information about how to tell the future, how to read entrails, how to look into the stars, and they're supposed to understand this stuff well. Do you notice he takes their names away? So, so Daniel and Hananiah, and all, the, all these names relate to God. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. And instead, he gives them names of pagans, related to pagan gods. He's He's moving, removing their identity. Even this, this decision to give food from his table. Think of what happens every day for three years when you're enjoying better meat than you've ever enjoyed before, better wine than you've ever enjoyed before, and every day is like, this comes to you courtesy of your great king. Do you see how over time what's happening is, is, Bab is, is Nebuchadnezzar is trying to strip these boys of their Jewish identity. He's trying to take away their distinctives and make them Babylonian for the purpose of control. Because if, if the best leaders of Jerusalem become allied with him, worshiping what he worships, then he can lead the rest of Israel just fine. And what we see here is that in exile there is this pressure, this desire to co-opt God's people. And we will experience it. I mean, we see it if we just look around. We see it politically, right? I, I was looking at an interview with Billy Graham shortly before he died, asking, do you have any regrets? He says, yes, I would have steered clear of politics. 
Because looking back, he recognizes that sometimes he was used by political parties, that if he became close to a president, it was looked as the Christian church endorsing this president. He was being used for other ends. We see the same thing happening right now, right? Whether it's, whether it's the right co-opting evangelicalism or the left co-opting co progressivism, the point is that oftentimes political parties will seek to use the church so that it can maintain power. It's not just in politics. I mean, think about our schools. I, I'm grateful for public schools. I'm grateful for those who serve in public schools. But the reality is, public schools are not designed to form our children to be faithful followers of Jesus. I mean, that's not controversial. Their goal is to form pluralists who are capable con contributors to our economy. And, and that means that whenever, I mean, we can maintain our Christian convictions, but when they come into conflict with these pluralistic goals or this contribution to the economy, well, the expectation will be that our Christian values end up having to be diminished because these other things are more important. There's this pressure to co-opt us for other purposes. We see the pressure in our entertainment industry. There's kind of a tacit bargain. We will give you interesting stories, but we will also seek to shape you to see sexuality and tolerance a certain way. I'm not trying to be kind of this doomsayer. There's so many good things about our culture, but I'm pointing out that when we are in a society that doesn't recognize Jesus as king, we should recognize that there will be pressures to co-opt us and our children. That is just one of the challenges of living in exile. Daniel is laying that out in the opening verses when we see this, this twofold problem where it seems like God has failed, he's not in charge, and we see this intention to co-opt God's people for other purposes. And the question is, what do we do about that? And that is what the rest of Daniel is intending to answer. And, and we kind of have the beginning of an answer in chapter 1. Now I should acknowledge that what we actually have after verse 7, the, you know, 1 through 7 lays out the problem, 8 begins to tell us the solution, that the, the story recorded here is not a terribly interesting story, at least from a human level. I mean, what do we have here? We have a high school kid at a, an international boarding school doesn't want to eat the food he served. So he talks to one like low-level guy and another low-level guy, and he's eventually able to get permission to eat a different meal, and it turns out great. I mean, that is pretty ordinary story, if you think about it. Except, and this is key to the book of Daniel, Daniel wants us to look at this from another level. And that, and that different level actually begins right at the very beginning of our passage. Did you notice how this beginning of the exile is described in verse 2? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Did you hear that? The Lord gave the king. The Lord is the one who has decided that this exile would be successful. The Lord is the one who's decided that his temple treasury would be vacated. The Lord is the one who's decided that Daniel and his friends would end up having to be going to this Babylonian school. This was not a failure of God. This was actually his design. When we get a little bit later to verse 9, we see Daniel having this this nervous, awkward conversation where he talks to Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man and he's asking for a different diet. And, and we find out that Nebuchadnezzar actually has taken a liking to Daniel. He's got this soft spot. He feels compassionate for him. And, and so he is able to, in responding to Daniel, not just shut him down, not be grumpy with him, 
But as we'll see, he responds in such a way to leave the door open for Daniel. And, and what verse 9 tells us is this is not just favoritism. Favoritism feels like really normal. We're accustomed to favoritism. But 9 says there's something more going on. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That somehow God has been at work in this eunuch, Ashpenaz, and has opened his mind and his heart to see Daniel and to care for Daniel. It's God. Or then one more time, in, in verse 17, when this whole kind of eating ordeal is done, when the three years of education is finished, it says that they, I mean, they dazzle the king and the attendants. Verse 17 will, will tell us, as for these four youths, God, I mean, what did we see at the, at the end of this time, sorry, verse 18, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like these four. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters. The pros, the magicians and enchanters, they were ten times better. Don't you think that would have annoyed the pros that these upstarts are somehow making them look bad? And, and these people probably, when they're looking, it's like, wow, these kids are bright. Or maybe others might have gone, wow, they had an incredible tutor for them to just understand the literature of this well, to speak in flawless Akkadian, what good education they had. And maybe both of those were to some degree true. But verse 17 says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. He was the one who was at work in their minds, suddenly giving them just the facility to understand these things for the first time. As they were studying, they were able to be given perception, and it was God who was doing it. You have these glimpses here that there is something else beyond what is visible that is taking place. You know that expression, um, the tip of the iceberg? I've, I've realized I've used it so much or I hear it so much that I stop actually thinking of the metaphor. My brother took a cruise in Alaska a number of years ago, and he talked about how cool it was to actually see an iceberg calve. You know what that means? Like one piece of iceberg breaks off another. But he also acknowledged that when he was in this boat, they were way far away. And, and the reason is because what you see is much smaller than what's actually there. Oftentimes, icebergs, what you can see, you only see about 10%. There is 90% of what's going on below the surface that you are not even able to recognize. And I would suggest that that is what we have here. We are given, in these three glimpses of, of, of God bringing God's people there, of God bringing favor of Ashpenaz, of God giving them ability. There are these little windows to, to help us to see that there is something far bigger that is taking place than we can realize. Can you imagine if, if that's how you began to view your life? So we talk about the difficulty of the society, the time that we're in. People say, I hate 2021. I hate 2020. This is just a terrible thing. What would it look like if we actually said, God is the one who brought about 2021 for a purpose, and he is the one who has brought us here in this moment, in this challenge, for something. We have people that we interact with, people that we get to know. How would it change us if we recognize that every time we connect with someone, God moved that person and moved us to bring us into connection with each other? 
Or as we find ourselves with different skills or different aptitudes, how would it change us to realize, and God gave us this ability for this moment to do this? How would that shape us to be thinking in those terms? This isn't just a hypothetical question for us to imagine on a rainy day. Daniel actually wants us to recognize this is how things actually are. The book of Daniel wants us to realize that if we are operating only by what we can see, it, it's like we are skating on the barest surface of reality, staying at a superficial level when there is something way bigger and deeper, that in what seems ordinary moments, angels are present. That in mundane interactions, a spiritual battle is taking place. That in the, the frustrating daily grind of living in exile, God is at work. And what Daniel wants us to understand is, is the way of living in exile well is to begin to see this. There's a word that comes up repeatedly in Daniel um, that's an important one, and, and it's sometimes translated as, as insight. And this idea of insight is, is being able to live with a recognition of that deeper heavenly awareness, not just based on what we can see, but, but living each day with an awareness that there is something bigger going on. And what the book of Daniel intends for us to understand is this is the way to live. And, and the book of Daniel doesn't just give us this kind of abstract idea. It actually shows us, here's what the work of the life of insight looks like. Chapter 1, what we see in Daniel, we are meant to see an example of what it looks like when someone is navigating their life by insight. I just want us to, to think for a moment what it must have been like for Daniel and his three friends. I mean, it's almost incomprehensible to go from being in your home with, with uncles and grandparents and parents and cousins and in a society where it is faithful to Yahweh and suddenly overnight to be lifted into this new community where every person of power, everyone who has any say in your life believes differently. I mean, what are you supposed to do with yourself? What are your dreams in that moment where you're now living in another city and you will probably never come home? What, what chapter or verse do you turn to in your Bible to navigate what you are supposed to do now that this has happened to you? You're a high school kid. You can't figure this out. Oftentimes when, we, when people find themselves in, in threatening situations, something like that, um, you see one of two responses. Sometimes there is kind of this, this compromise tendency. You might call this almost like the Stockholm Syndrome, that, that over time, because, because of pressure and because of wanting to kind of please the captors, you become more and more like them. Not all at once, but over time, you just kind of accept the pressure that they make until you're virtually indistinguishable from them. That's one way. Another response that can sometimes happen when you're in a situation like this is to go the very opposite, to be strident, to be angry, to protest, to make sure that it is clear that you are different from everyone else and you don't care who you alienate and if they martyr you, great, because at least you're right. And if you think about it, actually, when we're talking about our condition in exile, the church oftentimes chooses one of these two responses. So sometimes the church wanting to please the community around will, over time, become virtually indistinguishable from its community. If it's a conservative community, it will look conservative. If it's a liberal community, it will look liberal, but it won't look any different from the world around it. 
Other times we'll see that the church decides to show that they are different. And they will do it in an angry and, and yelling and we will fight for our right way because we are against you and you are against us. Both of these ways, interestingly, are united by one thing. And that is fear. Fear is what leads to compromise, not wanting to be different. But fear is also what leads us to antagonize. I mean, just think about it for yourself. Can you ever think of a moment when you've been in a conversation when you are yelling because you are secure and confident in yourself? No, we, we yell because we're threatened. And what I think is especially important for us to see is that as Daniel is facing this very same kind of pressure, he chooses neither of these responses. To be clear, he is absolutely unwilling to compromise. Verse 8, it says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He, he makes this decision early on that whatever he's called to do, he is going to remain faithful to God. And that decision he holds to for the rest of his life. Specifically, we're told he would not defile himself with the king's food. He is choosing that he's not going to eat the meat or the wine that the king has to offer. And, and commentators aren't exactly sure why that is. Our passage doesn't tell us. The fact that it keeps on mentioning that this meat and this wine is coming from the king's table would suggest that seems to be the key. Perhaps Daniel is aware that day after day of just receiving all good things from the king would slowly move his heart in allegiance to him, and he's not willing to go there. We don't know for sure why this is the line that he draws. What, what matters is that he draws this line. He feels that this would be unfaithful to God if he eats this. But notice how he responds. He doesn't respond, you know, like suddenly like putting up a sign and marching and protesting, will not eat meat, will not eat meat. I mean, that's not his, I mean, he could do that. And again, he might feel good because he would feel right before he suddenly gets really punished. But, but that kind of response, as, as maybe self-affirming as it might feel, is almost never productive. And that's not what Daniel does. Daniel does something subtler. He, he cleverly kind of works the system. I mean, he starts with this guy Ashpenaz, who seems to have a good connection with him. He asks him the question, and Ashpenaz basically says, Daniel, if you aren't healthy, the king will kill me. Now, some people might take that as a no, but Daniel doesn't. He thinks about it for a while, and he realizes, okay, there's actually an open door here. And so he goes to the guy below Ashpenaz, the guy who actually is in charge of giving him food. And he actually gives him this really good plan. He says, you know what, all that matters is that we look healthy, right? So why don't we just take 10 days? I mean, what bad thing can happen in 10 days? You just give us vegetables, and implicitly, and you get to keep the rest. And the servant thinks about having steak and Cabernet every night and says, that sounds like a great idea. We'll see what happens after 10 days. And so at the end of 10 days, what happens? Daniel and his friends look great. And everyone else looks kind of flabby. And they're like, okay, vegetables for everyone, which to me means Daniel probably isn't very popular with some of his friends at this point. But you see, you see this clever way of, of, of navigating this. And this, this kind of agility continues when, we, when he stands before the king, what, what do we recognize? On one hand, he will not be defiled. And yet, he is willing to engage in careful study of Babylonian literature and Akkadian and know more about it than anyone else. 
We see he will not participate in eating from the king's table. He will not have that kind of allegiance. And yet, for the rest of his life, he will serve the king and seek to do good to the king. And the result, we will see, is not that Daniel gets moved towards Nebuchadnezzar, but in the end, through Daniel's faithfulness, Nebuchadnezzar gets moved towards God. And ultimately, through Daniel and his friends, Nebuchadnezzar comes to recognize the true God. And, and the way that Daniel was able to do this, again, is not because he had some chapter and verse that kind of navigated all of this. It was through insight. Daniel was able to recognize that even though it doesn't look this way, God is still in control and he's still what is most important. And so it was most important to him that he would be faithful to God no matter what. But also because he believes God really is in control. He knew he didn't need to operate in fear. He could operate without cynicism. He could operate, hopefully, moving one step after another, expecting God to be there and to help him. I mean, just think for a moment about this, this 10-day trial. Daniel is not a dietitian. It's not like he just assumed, hey, when everyone has vegetables, it's going to work great. No, anyone at that time would have assumed that vegetables would make you less healthy. But Daniel, I think, has this conviction that, you know what, I don't know how this is going to work, but I believe that God is here and that he might bless this. So let's see what happens. He was able to operate throughout this incredibly difficult situation by having this awareness of this heavenly reality that cannot be seen. This heaven reality that anchored him and, and guided him. This insight is how he was able to live. And what I want to suggest is I believe the book of Daniel is meant for us for that. We, we need insight, and insight is not something that you and I can just kind of just work at. We can't just decide we're going to look at things better from now on. It has to be given to us. That's one of the clear things that's taught in Scripture. And Daniel is meant for that. It is a training guide. As we go chapter after chapter, we will see again and again Daniel asking us to look at things we think we see and inviting us to see them in a different way, in a heavenly way. That, that training, that intent on giving us insight continues beyond the book of Daniel. We see it repeated actually in the New Testament. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he speaks of how God granted the most remarkable insight in the giving of Jesus. That when Jesus came, a mystery that was hidden for generations has suddenly been revealed, and we see what God has been seeking to do with this world all along. That when Jesus came, it was so that the exile might come to an end. So that on the last day, all things would be brought under Jesus' lordship and all would be made right. That is the insight that we are supposed to operate with. And then Paul, after saying, this is this glorious truth that you should know, what does he do? He prays. He says, and my prayer for you is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would see this. That you would see the reality of God's power at work in this world. That you would see the glory of the hope for you. His prayer is for insight for us. And I want to encourage us as we begin this journey where Daniel is seeking to train us towards this, that that would be our prayer as well. That even now we would take some time before God and acknowledging our inability to see. This is something that I've been so aware of as I thought about it this week. How little do I actually operate 
on this reality of God being here and at work in miraculous ways, I think it would be appropriate for us to acknowledge our failing and to ask God to give us insight in this season as we study this book. So I invite you to do that even now. Let's, let's take a minute or two as we seek to respond to God's word, to confess where we need to, and to ask God for help. And I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.